talking about making theories. And really, what I take a lot of comfort in are the teachings that say, uh, take these teachings, listen to them, see if they work to make your life better. And if they do, then do it. But it's more about taking the practices of how to live and how to work with one's mind than it is about becoming a something or believing something. Uh, it's it's interesting because I often get interviewed, and when the interviews start, when the que- interview question starts with the words "Do you believe?" or worse, "Surely you don't believe that," you know, the, I know the question is going to be really one of these thorny ones. Of <laughs> it doesn't matter what you believe; it matters what works to, in your life to keep your mind clear and your heart open to everybody else so that you take care of people, not only because it'll be better for those other people and they'll get home safe, but you will get home safe. And you will get home safe not only in your corporeal body, but in your mind. Probably the, the line that most catches me in, in the, in the uh, loving-kindness teachings is, may I be free of enmity and danger. And really, enmity, I'm thinking about not only of making people, uh, of thinking bad on people, but of making them others, making them other, and forgetting that, in fact, my life and theirs are all entwined and we depend on each other. It's very supportive to think of that. When we were here early this morning, yeah, what? Seeing this reminds me of something you've said frequently, that everyone is just doing the best they can. And when you realize that, you know, in this context, or what you say in Road Rage, you know, the guy on the Vespa or the person on the Vespa needs to be there because even though it might be irritating to the driver in the car, or the people crossing the road need the time to cross the road even though it may be irritating to the drivers who don't want to stop for them, or whatever. Um, But that concept of of being in the place of other people and realizing that even when someone is acting what you perceive as poorly, they're really doing the best they can. I'm not sure that you all heard what Anne said, but I want to say just the end of it, that, uh, first of all, the, the main point that she was bringing up, which is everybody is doing the best that they can. Best is a tricky word because sometimes you think, well, if that's the best, no, they could have done better. They could have done better if they would have made an effort. But my sense is if we could make an effort, we would have made the effort. Or if we would have had the wisdom to make the effort and the energy to do it, we would have done it. That my, my bottom sense is that nobody feels like suffering. But uh, And also I, I was thinking about well, something else that you said. And let me think about it. Oh, the, 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 one of the things about thinking about other people, putting yourself in the place of others, is at that moment that you're doing that for whatever reason, that you are not caught in your own self-absorbed story. We have such a small story. You know, if I think about my story, making it, this body making its way for three score and ten, or well, I've passed that, so uh, four score maybe, uh, or whatever years on this planet is a very small story. They got six billion other human stories happening here, not to speak of non-human but other live stories happening. And then the stories are going to have sequelae and sequelae and sequelae. And to the degree that I am not caught in my small story, but actually thinking about the stories of the whole planet, to that degree am I rescued from my own unhappiness, it shouldn't be this way and it shouldn't be that way. Going back again to the second noble truth of not being in contention, not needing this moment or this experience to be other than it is. Um, It's interesting to have a highway uh, because uh, uh, I, I brought it today because I didn't bring it last week. I would have brought it last week actually just to start the year with because I liked it so much. But um, now, you know, the highway is such a place where everybody gets contentious. It should be otherwise. Why are all these people here? Why is it also so crowded? It is, you know, for whatever reason. That the mind, 
what does he what did he say in Yanapanika? The the mind the mi- mindfulness has the the characteristic of not non coerciveness. Were you gonna say something first? No, you in recent years than in the last five days because I had no power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, oh boy, it's not what I want, but it's what I got. Yeah. I mean, every moment I was in that place of right, uh, that, uh, but this is what I have. This is where I am. That's very good. What's your name? What's your name? I'm Amy. Amy. And here's my guess. That from time to time, people without the power, because this has happened to me, I live up in Geyserville, we often are out of power, you call the PG&E to see when it's going to happen, and you get a recorded announcement that has no, that either, you know, you're the 87th online to have your phone, you know, call answered, or they don't mention your neighborhood or something, and you're actually hearing a machine, and you get mad at it, and it's a machine, you know, that's a... Yeah. Being on a fire department and talking to PG&E directly when they're out there. Yeah. They don't know. Yeah. Like we don't know. No, no, no. A lot of times they don't know what's going to happen. No, no, you're exactly right. What I'm saying is that the mind in its own capricious way, as if it makes a difference, allows itself to get mad at, uh, I got mad yesterday at the phone answering machine at Virgin American Airlines. It's a, it's a recorded machine. It, you know, it's a computer. It does not mean to misunderstand me. You know, that, uh, but, but, you know, uh, and you get, and at some point it says in its sweet voice, you didn't respond, and then you say in a loud voice, agent, and then they finally put somebody on. But, uh, but you know, it's a, it's a computer. But, uh, and, but the mind leaps up, and really, that's what we come to. Let's talk about the second noble truth a little bit. <laughs> the first noble truth last week was the cause of suffering. Uh, life is difficult, dukkha. It doesn't say suffering, it says dukkha. And the better translation of dukkha is it's unsatisfactory. You say, well, unsatisfactory, that's a grade we got in grade school, you know. <laughs> I got an unsatisfactory in third grade for works and plays well with others. I've remembered that since then. <laughs> and actually, it wasn't because I was, I, it didn't mean I played badly with other people. It mean I didn't play with other people. So I, I, that, was the, that was the you. I was an only child. I think I didn't know how to play with other people. But anyway, got a you. And it's 70 years later, 60 years later, and I remember that I got that. But uh, what do you mean life is unsatisfactory compared to what? You know, there, there isn't a compared... But it means what it really means. If you read the if you read the, um, the the scriptures and you read the commentary on it, is it's not there's no experience in life that's ultimately and enduringly satisfying. That you can you can have there are beautiful moments. Uh, let me read you some of this because it's, here is uh, Rahula Wanpala saying there are certainly lovely things in life. Here we go. There are certainly lovely moments in life that are so not to be. Uh, well, we'll leave it because I don't see exactly where it is. Is it not to have not to have the view that every moment is grim? There are lovely moments. There are beautiful moments. There are births of new babies and the first crocuses that are coming out and. And and uh, meteor showers and uh, great new discoveries and uh, whatever it is that we get happy about, and we get happy about them, and they are things that are ca- cause the arousal the, the arousal of joy. He said, "Wow, look at that! I was very joyous yesterday that so many people came out to vote in New Hampshire. I thought that's a great sign about <laughs> uh, about the power of democracy. People are beginning to take it seriously." What what the Buddha taught is that the joys are fleeting. They're as ephemeral as our woes. And that's a really great statement. One of my friends said, one of my teachers said that early on. They said, our joys are as ephemeral, as empty, as our woes. That doesn't mean that we don't have joys and woes. It means that we don't 
that we can't count on the joy to stay, and we can rely actually on the woes to pass or change or ameliorate in some way. But we don't need to be as startled by everything, that we don't have to fight so badly with it, that the the coerciveness, mindfulness is non-coercive. I don't need it to be otherwise. I can wait this out. I'd like to have the power on, but it's not. So I can wait it out. The result is that the power doesn't go on any faster. But your mind is not turmoiled up. You know, there's... there's, um, The idea that we can non-turmoil ourselves is a is a is a is a revolutionary idea. Maybe this is the I was going to say next week. Peace is possible is the most revolutionary idea that the Buddha had. But maybe this particular truth that the mind leaps up when it's got something good and it says, "Ah, I want more of that," or "I see something good," or "I need more of it," or "I can't be happy unless I." Have more. Get me two of everything, Sylvia says in the cartoon. <laughs> and it would be great to have a Nobel Peace Prize and an Academy Award and, uh, and uh, an Olympic medal and size two leather pants and <laughs> then everything that's great. I was going to bring in a pile of um, uh, magazines, I was, but I didn't have it. I was teaching this retreat, so I couldn't go and amass them from wherever I thought I had them. That were uh, you tell me travel magazines, uh, cooking magazines, and I was gonna have, I was gonna give them out and have you look look at the vocabulary in them, because the vocabulary <laughs> what the vocabulary is geared the words that travel writers and food writers use are words to arouse desire. And you see ads for things. Not to say that we shouldn't cook or read a food magazine or, or go on a travel. I mean, I'm not saying bad on any of these things. But there are words that actually arouse desire. And there are promises. What did I hear the other day? There was something on the, on the radio that was being advertised that says, your satisfaction is guaranteed. <laughs> now, I'm thinking to myself, there is nothing in the world about which your satisfaction can be guaranteed, you know, maybe maybe it means it's a good thing. But satisfaction guaranteed. If, 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 if you're not satisfied, you can send it back. That's good to know. But the idea of satisfaction without having something more, the ads all say, if you take this, your every need will be met. I would be embarrassed, I think, to myself. I don't even want to... If I am responding to an ad that says your every desire will be met... <laughs> I think, wait a minute, I don't want to be seduced by that. The best story about that is my friend uh, Sharon Salzberg tells about uh, her first visit to Jerusalem. And if you know the, the uh, if you know what Jerusalem looks like a little bit, you know that if when you go into the old city, there is a, a particular gate that you go through, and you walk down a flight of stairs through the Arab market, and there are stalls on either side with lots of things that you can buy. And lots of wonderful things that you can buy. And often the proprietors of those shops are staying outside and calling your attention to what's inside. And Sharon said, and everybody knows that if you want to get through there and you want to get to the bottom of the steps, if you want to shop, it's great. But if you want to get to the bottom of the steps, you keep your eyes straight ahead of you and you just walk with a determined step. And then everybody knows that you're not interested in shopping. But if you waver at all. (laughs) So she said... uh, She's walking down, and some shopkeeper came out and said clearly to her, he, he said, stop, come in here. I have exactly what you need. <laughs> and she said, you know, she almost stopped. And she thought, she thought, how does he know exactly what I need? But it's so seductive. I'll have what you need, and you'll be satisfied. And what, uh, what Rahula Wampala is saying is that the mind is so easily seduced by thinking, I'll feel better if I have this. I'll feel better if I'll have that. If I just did this, then I'll be good. If I just did that, if I just lost 10 pounds, if I just took a yoga class, if I just got a new carpet in the living room, if I just something, I'll feel good. And what, uh, and really, what, what each of these people, either the modern commentators or the ones of old are saying, is you might, but not forever just for a while, and then something else will happen. That the kind of satisfaction 
or the kind, uh, the kind of mind state that is ultimately satisfying is the one in which the mind doesn't need anything else. Not where th- there are two variations of I, I need. One is I need it, and the other is I can't stand this. I have to get rid of it. And the difference between, and, and the place between the two of them where the mind rests is it's okay. This is what I've got. I, I, what? I just wanted Go ahead. acceptance. Thank you very much. Tell everybody your name. Liz. Liz. So she's well. She's at home. She's at college. Oh. Loving it. Great. 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 You know, even people, you know, even people who don't know you, you have a, a, when you, when everybody here, I'm sure, they hear a story of somebody had a troubles in their life and it worked out. We feel better, don't we? Because the, the the every kind of a story that say it works out sometimes. You know, sometimes there's not such a good end to a story, but sometimes a good end. And then, you know, and and this required an intervention. It wasn't just waiting for it to pass. So to have the clear mindedness to know what intervention. That's like who well, Mark yesterday saying that mindfulness and love really meant, the practice of mindfulness and the practice of loving-kindness meant practicing the appropriate response to situations, which is really such a lovely way to think about it. Not just surrendering to situations, but the appropriate response. Sometimes it's surrendering. I know I've talked to you a lot about my friend tomorrow who died not so long ago. And the appropriate response to the obvious arrival of your last day is is to not fight with it so much. Makes it easier for you and for your friends. And she was a great teacher for me in doing that. So there isn't anything that you can do but surrender to it. But when you can do something to be able to do it, that's really something. But the mind. Well, think about another one. Uh, we get, I think, sometimes blinded by desires. I was thinking about all very well to say not get caught up in. Um, it's very human to get blinded by desires. We get desires more. I think. I wonder if this is true. This morning, when we did precepts, we said, "Why is there a special precept?" Uh, since the first precept is. Uh, I undertake the precept to avoid harming living beings. And then there's another precept, uh, uh, exploiting or uh, harming. Uh, Exploiting or abusing are the first two precepts. And then the third precept is I undertake the precept to refrain from exploiting or abusing people with my sexual energy, with my sexuality. So, So why do I have a special one about that? You know, I just said, Blanket statement, no exploiting or abusing. And most of the commentators say about that it's because sexuality is such a strong, 
vibe and so likely to cloud the mind. You know, if you think about it in literature, never mind, I'm not going to have anybody get up and say it in my own life, but, uh, but you know, I've, uh, in most groups where you say, especially with people who have been in long partnered relationships, that it never occurred to you in the course of your relationship, did it never arise for you uh, something of an intoxication or at least an infatuation or some serious interest in somebody else? Most people say, of course. You know, otherwise I would have to live in a cave for you know, the whole entire life. And I think it happened, maybe not for you, anybody, but for many people. They'll say, yes, of course it happened. And either they did something, or often, most often, don't do anything about it. But it's a very strong energy, and you don't know when it's going to overcome you. Remember Dr. Zhivago? Remember, he's a literature one. So you remember see the movie with Omar Sharif? Do you remember that? So in the beginning, here he is with his lovely fiance that everything is lovely about, and you like him, and you like her. And there on the, onto the scene comes Julie Christie, wasn't it? Julie Christie. Julie Christie, looking entirely spectacular, and you know <laughs> this is going to be a big car. This is the story, you know? And nobody wants it to go this way, but the, you know, the, the romance of that story is the mind and the heart go its way, even though you would have had an easier time if it went another way. But I think it makes that story because it's true. It's a very big energy. There was an, I, I, I wonder if I have time to tell you this story. This is an article. This is a review of a book by Annie Dillard. So how many people here read, ever read Pilgrim at Tinker Creek? You remember Pilgrim at Tinker Creek? Beautiful first book by Annie Dillard 20 years ago. Annie Dillard's a beautiful writer. And she's now written a novel. And the heroine is Lou who is uh, beautiful, um, in her youth often mistaken for Ingrid Bergman, educated, uh, generous, patient, forgiving, modestly artistic. <laughs> Sounds good, right? You can see already it's going to be Zhivago, right? Uh, having grown up in the shadow of her mother's resentment at their abandonment by Lou's father, a marblehead lawyer who ran off with his sister-in-law, Lou has learned before the novel even opens to focus on her gratitude for what she has while she has it. Doesn't that sound wise, to focus on the gratitude for what you have while you have it? And to mistrust the sense of grievance that has dominated her mother's life. That's a really important thing, the sense of grievance way after. She decides early on that it's better to love than to be loved. So that when, at, when her first briefly noted boyfriend leaves her for a pair of glockenspiel-playing twins, <laughs> she easily persuades herself that she has suffered no injury and remembers primarily how much she had always liked both the treacherous boyfriend and the twins. So along comes Toby Maitre, who's the man that Lou marries. He's a poet of some renown, admirable decency. And Deary Haito is one of their many colorful friends, uh, the vagabond, deary, free spirit. You can see already it's going to happen. <laughs> For 15 years, the Matries enjoy an almost perfect marriage, and it goes on how it's perfect. And then one day, everything falls apart. Actually, it falls apart. Uh, the, this is such a small sentence in here, but I'm going to tell it to you because I'm going to come back to it. It's small for his, uh, Lou, uh, Mr. Matry is about to tell her and that he has fallen in love with Deary and is going to go off with her. And he decides to tell her on their way to the hospital when their son has been hit by a car. Oh. So um, they they run to the scene where uh, the, the, the accident has happened, and uh, Mr. Maitre is enraged at the man. Lou, however... Imagining with pity and terror what it must feel like suddenly to see a little boy on a bike going down under your wheels and unable to stop, says, that poor man, poor everyone. I actually think poor everyone is a very good thing to remember. That's what I want to come back to. At that moment, Maitre makes his announcement. Uh, he sees that his, 
He tells himself Lou, Lou's mind is a universal solvent. It won't matter. She manages everything. I'll tell her now. Anyway, he goes off, and everybody, 20 years pass. 20 years pass. Everyone ages. Maitre regrets what he's done. Dreary, who he ran off with, didn't do well, apparently, in the going down. <laughs> it, it's mean. It's a, she looks like the queen mother. Anyway, anyway. And Lou says, too late, love is an act of will. When he regrets what he did, that he realizes that love is an act of will. And real love, you, it's an act of will because the mind can get so anyway, and then, in fact, uh, Dreary takes very ill, and uh, Mr. Maitre, whose name I've forgotten, is uh, incapable of caring for Deary himself, and he has nothing to do but to return with Deary to Provincetown and beg Lou, who, who he last saw nursing their invalid son, to take them both in. What comes next? This reviewer says is a fairy tale part. The virtuous heroine wonderfully preserved from the grosser signs of aging. <laughs> has to, she has to make what would seem to the less virtuous a delicious choice, whether to take pity on her sick ex-husband or the more sick former friend or not. But since the virtuous her- heroine is even now more virtuous, having spent 20 years doing spiritual exercise designed to extinguish resentment, self-cherishing, and envy, Sounds good to me, actually. She is innocently unconscious of the resemblance between her situation and any embarrassing possible wish fulfillment. Of course she would take them in, she thinks. Anybody would. They're my old friends. She does the right, noble, and generous thing. It's easy for her. She takes care of him. Actually, the dreary deary dies. And Maitri returns to his first true love as her morally reformed and now enlightened lover. And she nurses him as he ages, and then he dies too. So when you read that, when you hear that, so it was a little too long maybe. Do you, th- do you think not on my watch, forget about it? Do you think about that? Do you think about that? Uh, you know, the, 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 the reviewer didn't like it so much because he said this doesn't happen. It does, though. I know somebody who does. Well, you know, I, who, he, do you know Byron Katie? Mm-hmm. You know Byron Katie? Everybody's heard Byron Katie. Who read Loving What Is or <clears throat> any of the Byron Katie books? There's an example that she gives in one of those books. That's exactly that. It's more concise. She says, your partner of some, you know, intimate, your intimate partner of some duration comes home and announces, I have not only fallen passionately in love with somebody else, but they are passionately in love with me, and we are in the middle of a passionate love affair. And she said, you know, I would think to myself, if I really love this person, I would think, how great for you. I rejoice. So I read that, and I thought, wait a minute. Uh, If I could, though, I don't know if human beings are strung that way. What do you think about that? so, you know, but uh, it's not currently getting tested, so I don't know, but, you know, I don't know. What do you think? It's happened to me. My husband, my ex-husband went through that. Yeah. Yeah, my husband. It took, uh, I prayed to preserve him for a couple years, and now we're best friends. We just have split each other and said, I don't want that animosity for Mm -hmm. the rest of my life, and I wished him well. So there you go. It can happen, yeah. I mean, I'm applying a lot of gratefulness to my uh, ex-husband because my life would not have been what it is, and I wouldn't have met the man that I married if it had not happened, and I wouldn't live out here. So, yeah, I'm very grateful. See, these are great stories. I wasn't going to say anybody (laughs) has to say their personal story, but you can. (laughs) But I also think there's a piece of self-compassion in there. I I really like the and of course, the person left behind would have some very hard and very painful feelings. And I think it would be 
really doubly challenging to expect that we could be so enlightened that we get to that place right away. Yeah. I think the time and the deepening and the work is all part of the, the process, too. <laughs> I think it's very important. If you didn't hear in the back that it, you, everybody who's told their story said, well, not everybody, but like Liz said and you said, it takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of time. It's a very big shock to the nervous system. It's a shock to the ego. You know, however confident one is of oneself, I think it's a very big shock to your ego to have the person that you're in relationship with come home and say, you know, whoops, it happened. It does, though. And uh, it takes a very particular kind of strong ego to say, this has nothing to do with me. This has to do with other people. But it also is acknowledging a loss. But it also is acknowledging a loss. And it's the end of a plan for life to unfold in a certain way, which probably, re- you know, which requires some regrouping. <laughs> but what you said is, a, what's your name? Jackie. What Jackie said about, I wouldn't be here now had this not happened and that not happened and that not happened, which included a story like that. No one, no one of us would be here now unless every single thing in our life that happened had happened. And when I think about that and say my life would be perfect except that this happened or that happened or the other happened, but when I think about it, if something else had happened, I would have gone another, I would have had another life. Sometimes when you think about the smallest things that you would have had another life, I think I told you last week I had just found out from uh, the, the physical therapist who uh, works at the Asher Clinic when my neck nerve gets bad, told me that she met the man that she has been married to for 27 years because he sat down next to her when she was uh, taking a trip through France 28 years ago. But he sat down next to her on the train because he missed the train before. And that happens so frequently. You know, people say, you know, this happened. And had I not gone to that party or met this person or done that thing... And when you think about it, we would not be here had we not done every, every single thing. Maybe if I, you know, maybe not every tiny thing, but most of the things, yeah. Um, I just wanted to say that um, the question you immediately got was telling me that I, I think it would be good, well, I, I think it would be skillful at least in my life that if I could do that with my spouse or my friends, that would be really wonderful. really wonderful too because then I would be acknowledging what I'm capable of and what helps my mind to be peaceful and what uh, helps to create an environment for my my well being for my spiritual practice in my life. And so I would think there was a blame either way. So you know some people might do something like that because they feel guilty if they don't. So that would be more of a blame back. Yeah, no no and I'm thinking particularly the value of what you're saying about Sometimes we think about something that's the virtuous thing to do. So if I were really virtuous, I would do that. But I'm not, at this point, that virtuous. Um, and I feel bad that I'm not, or if I feel bad, either I'm not, that's just the way it is, or I'm not and I feel bad after all these years of spiritual practice, I should be more virtuous, I should have worked it out. If I have those kind of thoughts... To actually notice how much pain those those derogatory thoughts cause me. Every thought that I shouldn't be the way I am. I am the way that I am. To be able to have compassion for myself to be that way. Say, I still have uh, revenge on my mind. To be able to have compassion for myself. Or I still have hostility on my mind, let alone not revenge. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And besides, oh, this is actually a particular kind of virtue, yeah. I just wanted to say that for me, in the poster, the strongest image is the couple, the pregnant woman yeah. and the man, and it really reflects this extraordinary energy that we deal with, they're young, that we deal with that in some way is greater than our comprehension. Mm-hmm. It is the universe at work in each of us, and those pulls are extraordinary, <clears throat> and we each deal with them in different levels. 
Yeah. That's the, one of the things that makes that poster so strong to me is that couple. Yeah. And, yeah. and the agreement of the nonverbal communication that you could be any place in the world and know that you cross safely because that's it's the crosswalk light that everybody on this planet is going to understand. So this is thank you very much for bringing us back to the poster, Julie, because I want to talk about the other great pull. One great pull is the pull of lust and specifically sexuality. The other great pull, not not always so. Uh, well, the other great pull in the in the scriptures and the teachings is the pull of aversion. We're very easily angered. We fall prey to lust, but we fall prey to anger too. Somebody says, can you, "Can you believe what he did?" And then you get all upset and you say, "I'll go with you to take care." You know that we stir up each other. That's how wars start. Someone says, "Everybody insulted us," and then we say, "Okay, then we have to go have a war with them." Or everybody provoked us. Oh, it makes sense. Uh, I mean, not to at any in any way trivialize what I think is you know the the destruction is the anger the potential of anger and war that could be the end of this planet. There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings, in the second of the Lord of the Rings, where the decision is made to go to war. And do you, who saw the Rings series? And so maybe you'll remember this. There's a there's a there's a decision, and the leader says, "Okay, to arms! Everybody, go to the armory." And there's a very powerful scene with no talking, but you see everybody, you know, hordes of men rushing through the armory, picking up all kinds of swords and lances, and uh, and running out, you know, one after another. There's no talk. There's no dialogue. It's just a long scene of men rushing through the armory and picking up a sword. And I looked at that, and and everybody with, you know, their face fired up when going to war. And I thought to myself, because it reminded me of the line in Scripture, that if somebody would have said at some point, this uh, uh, this sword would make a very good plowshare. Mm-hmm. You remember that? It's, it's, I think it's from Isaiah. And they will turn their swords into plowshares. That at some point somebody's picking up the, in the intoxication of rage and says, by the way, this would be a very good plowshare. I think I'll go home. Forget that war business. That's not good, you know. And people went home. But the, the, the whole business of going to war is intoxicating. And if you listen to, um, you know, the martial music that, that get, you know, gets played on parade grounds or when. Uh, I'm trying to think of the, uh, we haven't had a war. We do have a war going on right now. I grew up uh, during the Second World War. And there were all kinds of songs that people sang to uh, to rev up the anger of people lest they, <clears throat> let's remember Pearl Harbor. You know, they're just to fire up people. Do you remember that song? Who remembers singing that or hearing it? That, you know, it, you have to have been around in 1941-42 but that was really to inspire people to go out and kill other people uh, I was uh, uh, bicycling in France this summer and I was, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, it was a very long uh, I was part of a, a, a group ride that went on for several days with very big endurance and I noticed that the songs that spurred me on if I sang them to myself were tremendously martial, you know, uh, that, uh, you know that because they have a beat that, you know, keeps you going. I mean, people have marched across continents singing God Save the Queen or uh, Onward Christian Soldiers. I mean, I tried them all out. And, 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 and actually, you know, and I was, I'm horrified to find that I did a lot of bicycling to the Marseillaise. First of all, I was in France. But the Marseillaise has an extremely bloody end. Do you know? Do you know the the last lines of it? It uh, you know, pick up your arms, citizens, uh, form your battalions, march on, march on, until their impure blood waters our fields. That's completely not acceptable. You know that, but but that's the kind of stuff that fires people up. 
I think to myself, I'll have to, you know, I have to not sing the last part. I can just sing the beginning because it's got a very good. But <laughs> but yeah, that comes with it. Actually, when I talked to my neighbors about it, I I, I had a, a, a some of my neighbors over one evening, who just because of the street that I live in, uh, happened to be ten years older than I am. So they lived through the war in France, and uh, they they're very interested in what goes on in America. They they ask me a lot about. Not so much about politics. Everybody is, you know, they they ask me about my politics. I tell them, and, but uh, uh, I brought up about the Marseillaise. He said, "Oh, we never sing that." They said, "That's a terrible song. Look what it says," <laughs> you know. So that uh, so we do not sing it in schools. Children don't learn it. Uh, you know, they're really it's 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 too sanguine. Um, but really, what I wanted to do is I wanted to tell you that I think that just as the uh, impulse for lust and the impulse, just as the impulse for lust is often overwhelming. You know, and sometimes people get caught up in a lust and they feel, I cannot live without this person. And then after they begin a relationship, ugh, the whole lust falls away often. You know, it's not that big of a deal. Not always, but sometimes. Because the idea of it is so intoxicating. Not always, but sometimes. But also with war, people have, uh, we have to, if you, if you start to live long, you start to notice that the, um, that you have to stop being, having in the mind that these people are the enemy, because now we have new enemies, and the people who used to be the enemies are now the friends. Um, I found myself in, uh, I, I, this is a good story, but I don't know if I have time to tell you. I was in Germany. I was in Germany uh, about 50 miles north of Berlin uh, some years ago on a houseboat with my husband with our bicycles. And we had rented the houseboat for 10 days. You bicycle around, uh, you ride this houseboat to different places and you park it, and then you bicycle around. And I hadn't been, it was, I hadn't been, it was some years after the wall had come down. Uh, but uh, it happened that it, that piece, that part of uh, East Germany was just as we were there having the last of the Russian soldiers who had occupied it live, leaving. It was a very strange kind of feeling to see Russian soldiers. I'm in Germany. And there are Russian soldiers in Russian out, Russian uniforms walking back and forth across the waterfront, not in any menacing way, but they're there. Uh, the day before this particular story, we had arrived in that place and uh, commissioned our boat and gotten it and uh, ridden in a, on our bikes around the lake. It's a very, very big lake. And uh, we said, what's that big building on the other side of the lake? And uh, they said, that's Ravensbrück. That's one of the concentration camps. It's actually the concentration camp where women and children were brought. And something like 350,000 women and children were killed there. So we bicycled around the lake. It's hard to tell because I get all those pimples. And we stopped there and went through it. It's the only camp that I've ever been through. And uh, it's a museum now. And... um, it's divided. It, the rooms, the out, the the structure of the inside rooms where people were were left. So it's divided inside into large rooms, and each room has been uh, has been decorated, so to speak, to commemorate a particular country of the the ten or fifteen countries of which their people were in Ravensbrück. So an artist from Sweden did a room commemorating the Swedish Jews and other people who died there. The Swedes who died there and the Danes who died there and the Norwegians, each room was separate. And it's, it's it, it, how many of you have ever visited a camp? It's horrifying, isn't it? You can't, you can't even talk about it. When we left, we went out. We didn't say a word the whole time we were in. And we went out, and uh, you know, you go get the bikes, and say, "Don't say a word. Don't say a word." You know, you just bicycle home, and you wait some time. So the next day, 
it's in the morning, and I'm in the little galley of my houseboat, and I'm making sandwiches. We're about to start out for the day. And um, I see out the window the Russian soldiers in their outfits, in Russian outfits, walking back and forth. And everybody looking peaceful, though they were they, they were the occupying forces. But now they're peaceful. They're about to leave. They're about to be uh, withdrawn. <laughs> and next to us, there was a big <clears throat> tourist ferry boat. You know, the kind that goes out on a lake and takes people around the lake. So it's filling up with German tourists who are going to go have a ride around the lake. And so they get in onto the ferry, and the ferry blasts its horn as the ferries do when they're about to take off. And I'm making my sandwiches. And the ferry pulls out, and it's and it's got an umpa band, a German umpa band, and they're playing Anchors Away. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I've gone mad, you know. <laughs> if I turn around and look behind me, out the other window, I'll see Ravensbrück across the lake. They have Russian occupying soldiers walking back and forth here. They have Germans going out on a pleasure boat playing Anchors Away. And I am making sandwiches like like life is normal. It's not normal at all. It's a crazed planet where people who could live with each other kill each other and keep each other captive and do terrible things to each other and kill women and children and, and men and everybody. It, it has, we have to have gone community crazy to do this. I think it was the anchors away that did it. You, know? <laughs> you can't remember who is whose enemy. That's it. So the, 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 the sentence that I wanted to end with this morning which goes with this, which goes with that story, is a quote from the Persian poet Hafiz, who said, I have lived to see just this, that the sword drops from man's hand just at the height of its arc because he has realized that there is just one flesh to wound and it is God's. Just one flesh to wound. So there we go. I'm very glad that we're back. Next week is the third noble truth. Finally, we'll talk about peace as possible. Maybe it'll be... No, I, I'm glad I said what I said today. I'm glad I remembered that story. I forgot to tell you this important announcement. Next week is our... I can't believe I'm talking about something so heavy one minute and the next minute I'm talking about, but I am. Next week we have a book exchange. I've been bringing my books and putting them in the bookcase over there. So this is in case you have too many books in your library and in case you got presents for Christmas that you really didn't want or things in your house that you really want to simplify your life. What we're going to do next Wednesday is we're just going to put out everything. And you, you don't have to mind yours. You're not selling them. We're just putting everything out. And I don't know exactly how to do it, whether we should just at uh, 11 o'clock say everybody help themselves to whatever they want or whether at, you should take as many as you bring. I don't think so. I think you should bring as much as you want to and take whatever you want to. I thought maybe we could have as a participation thing, maybe we take a bowl and to participate in the whole event, you put $5 or something, uh, or, or more if you want, but just to put $5. For that $5, you can take as many books, as many anything as you want, and then we'll take all the money and we'll give it to Homeward Bound or New, uh, New Directions or something like that. We'll make up. We'll, make, we'll figure that out after a while. What do you think? Anyone want to change some of that? No money exchange, more money exchange. What do you think? Anybody? Or actually, no minimum. Put whatever you want. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Put whatever you want to be to be in the part. So it means you can put nothing, mm-hmm. and bring nothing. If you take, put nothing and bring nothing, you can take as much as you want anyway, <coughs> because that would be a great world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No books, CDs. I have videos. I have books, CDs, videos, brick a brack, whatever you want that you would find in. In a set, no couches, <laughs> whatever, whatever, and bring it, and come a little early so you can put it there. But seriously, 
And then we'll stop 15 minutes early. Bring a bag. Bring a shopping bag so you can take home stuff. Because really, this and then we'll bring everything to St. Vincent's that we don't, or the Salvation Army or something that we don't use, and they'll sell it. Then it'll go for. Sale. But I think it's a very good gesture at the beginning of the year to uh, to let go of what we don't need to have around anymore, and are never going to read again. And other people might enjoy. You might, if you want, by the way. I, I didn't do this, but you could on books put a sticky. Like, this was fantastic, this I love, this is a great story for people who are this. You don't have to if that's too hard. But if you want to put a sticky, you can. Yeah. Elizabeth. Um, I just reminded the clergyman needs. Um, some of you are new, never come before, and I just um, let you know that there's three baskets out front, and I made them quickly. The second basket, which is our donation to the homeless. And I had the opportunity, jo- uh, Joe Button has been away. She left for the beginning of January, so um, I had the opportunity to go to Costco and buy the food for a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We do that every other month, um, every odd month. So um, it was quite an experience for me to, to, to take it down there and deliver it on Mill Street. Oh, great. So um, just please be generous. Um, we do do this uh, once a month, um, a dinner, or a breakfast, lunch, and dinner every odd month. And... The cost does escalate when you're trying to get the things that they feel that they need for um, these meals. So please also uh, be aware that there is a Donna basket, and that is for Sylvia. She's not paid for these lectures, so please um, be generous with that as well. Thank you. And the other one is for Spirit Rock. It keeps the light on and the heat and, uh, you know, everything else. It runs the organization, The phone pays the phone bills. It's seriously, it's our operating budget. It's not the whole of the operating budget, but uh, really it's a big piece of the operating budget. So I'm glad we're back, and I'll see you next week.